Hey guys, this is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. Welcome to episode number five of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. Today's episode, we have Dan Howes, who is head of strength and conditioning with England Sevens. Hey Dan, how's it going? Hey Keir. How are you? Thanks for having me. Mate, absolute pleasure. So um, for those who are not in the know, Daniel is one of my, my big mentors, my sensei from the London Wasps days. Um He's currently out in Hong Kong with uh, the guys getting ready for a tournament. So big thanks for uh, for taking part. Do you want to kind of introduce yourself to, to people and kind of tell them how you got to the role that you're in now? Yeah, so thanks for tuning, tuning in, guys. Uh, my journey, is, so to speak, really started as a player, I guess, you know, growing up um, as a semi-decent player. Aspirations were to always play at the top level. Um, being a hard-working yet realistic individual coming through university, it was apparent that I was a little bit off the pace in terms of making the pro ranks, etc. So I put my efforts into uh, education and study. And being a rugby player at the time, I guess I thought that I kind of knew the stuff I needed to know about fitness training, as, as so to speak, back then, because I was getting guidance from the academies that I was in. And so I put my efforts into physiology a little bit more, um, performed a, a postgrad study and research in physiology and, and luckily enough, CV at that point put me in contact with guys in, in, in the US and I, I did an internship out there, so this was in the early days of internships, the turn of the, the millennium and such and went out there and it, it, that, that really opened my eyes to probably a, a professional strength conditioning with professional athletes and, and that was with the ski team prior to an Olympics so that was when I came back to England and realised I wanted to pursue strength conditioning a little bit more heavily and realised I didn't know what I thought I knew and there was so much more to it and so I put my time and effort into workshops, accreditation, um, extra study etc and, and gaining experience across the field and that journeyed me to the Institute of Sport which was a novel way into rugby really compared to other practitioners in, in England gave me a real good insight into other sports um, across disability sport as well Olympic sport and non-Olympic sport individual sports and team sports and then that journey took me towards uh, WASPs where we met um, last year he called me a sensei but I, you know, I'll tell you listeners that there was a lot of constructive conversations between you and the other guys it was quite a good team in terms of learning off each other um, and and then that put me in place to, to luckily get this opportunity with the Sevens, which has been fantastic over the last 18 months. And that brings me to current day in Hong Kong. Mate, that's awesome. So um, do you think it was a, an advantage in your career to be to be in that, that American environment so early on, you know, in your formative years as a coach and kind of set the bar for you in, in terms of what constitutes good coaching? Because I think one of the, the best things that I ever did with my career when I... You know, people ask me, and I think one of the best things I ever did was go out to the Central Virginia seminar in um, in Richmond that's hosted by my mate Jay. And a big thing for me was that it just opened my eyes, and it, I came home feeling a bit like a fraud, like I didn't deserve to be a coach. But it it showed me what I should be trying to aim for and what I needed to do to get myself to that level. I think, I think going out to the ski team, the first thing that was evident for me was that this training facility was this massive warehouse that they pumped a lot of money into in terms of the training facility. Um, and it, but these guys were on the road a lot, 
but they used it as a central hub site and they came in and everything they did were doing between competitions in season and then out of competition in the off season was was accountable in nature. That's my first real indication of high level accountability, um, diagnostics, novel training methods, etc. Um, and they were bold with it. You know, they put it out there. They, they tried different things. It was exciting. They made it good for the uh, the, the athletes and interesting. And, and that, having been only in rugby, it really opened my eyes to a different sport, a different way of doing things. And at that point, the things I was exposed to as a young rugby player back in in the days was was way behind what I was seeing with the international skiers. Um, they look they were much more athletic, much more robust, um, and they weren't, you know, these guys weren't running around in, in terms of a team sport environment. So it really did open my eyes and gave me a bit, a bit of passion because there was a lot of passion coming out of those models in America at the time. So it really gave me that insight as well. Yeah, I think that's a, a great thing that you pointed out there about a, a sport like skiing. I, like, I call them um, stopwatch sports. So I think within rugby, there's there's always a lot of room to to hide if you're a bad coach because we know that on-field performance, there's so many different things that can affect um, how your athletes do. It might be the weather, it might be the other team, it might be the referee, bad luck and all that stuff. But with with an individual sport like skiing or, or weightlifting or sprinting and stuff like that, I think there's you're under a lot more scrutiny as a coach and as an S&C coach because either the numbers improve or they don't improve. So I think that would be, you know, an awesome environment to be in as a coach. I'm not sure if I'm brave enough to, uh, to go to that myself, but that's, that's one of the reasons that I try and take so much information from, from coaches that I admire within those sports, because it's, it's a, to me, a lot more um, tried and tested than it can be within, uh, within team sports. So kind of finishing uh, that internship in the States, how exactly did, uh, the job with with EIS come about because obviously there's a lot of people listening to the podcast that that want to get ahead in the industry. What kind of stuff did you do um, coming off that to position yourself and and get that job for yourself? Yeah, came back and the, the biggest thing for me, and I'm sure you've alluded to it in some of your seminars, is, is building a, a network of individuals that that experience you as a person. As an individual, as a, char- a character, uh, they experience your work okay, as a professional, um, and that network provided me then with the opportunity. So the work I did in the states was noted, and they, they liked what I did. They knew I was always going home; they couldn't offer me anything. But they created an opportunity with the GB team then. So they had a network of individuals that passed my details on, and then somebody got in contact with me there, and that was sort of my big light bulb moments to suggest that you know you need to be getting yourself out there exposing yourself um, in terms of your practice and then that experience was on my CV then I had two international experiences in terms of my work working with professional teams uh, by the time I was six months into being back in, in the United Kingdom and I was working for a university at the time as well as a sports scientist sports science officer covered across disciplines but I was doing my private work with GD team and, and getting the interview for the IS, speaking to my then interviewee but my boss to be was that it was the international experience with professional teams in a day in day out environment that, uh, and, and the lessons I'd learned through that that had really stood out the interview I was up against PhD candidates, I was up against guys who'd been in, you know, had high academic backgrounds and were maybe killed 
probably an interesting process in terms of the question, but from an applied point of view, sorry, an academic point of view, but from a day in day out experiences and coaching point of view, because it was a coaching job, they really um, got to see me in, in terms of my experiences of working with various different individuals, different characters, um, and I guess it's, it's those experiences that, uh, that I really advise people who are coming out of study to, to get within their study time and then as soon as possible after graduating as well because it is life experience and that's paramount to, to coaching especially yeah i agree with you mate absolutely because it's you know however however much we try and prepare ourselves with accreditations and, and academic qualifications like you you've kind of alluded to there there's there's a real big gap between that and the actual realities of um of what you're faced with when you're working with athletes in a in a big uh high performance team environment and especially when some of the athletes um might not be quite so willing to do the training not you know maybe mentioning names of Tim Payne at Wasps <laughs> um <laughs> Oh yeah. The example I use is a a Judah Bob, for example, in terms of university. You go through university, you learn about periodization, you learn about the Judah Bob principles of um, linear periodization or conjugate or whatever. But actually, the day in day out real reality are that you're having to to manipulate your programs day in day out. And I watched a presentation this week from Mike Young, who's over in England in May get to one of his workshops and he was talking about you know I write my, I write my plans in plans in pencil that was his philosophy you know he, he periodizes his plans in pencil he's got a rough estimation of where he wants to get to but day in day out that fluctuate and um, that's the real life experiences that practitioners or um, aspiring practitioners and graduates out of university need to experience as quickly as possible because no lecture can really teach you that you need to be in the firing line for that um, and make mistakes and, and learn from it so yeah, absolutely agree. You know, we our program we have such a short space of time. Speaking about the Argentina team, we have such a, a limited amount of time that obviously we're having to try and tread that line between um, too much and too little on on a daily basis. So we have to have quite a reactive program, and uh, we have contingencies built in. We have a high, medium, low load for every single day, and. We, we make that decision on the day based on the readiness of, of what we're presented with about what we're going to do for that athlete on, on that day. So, you know, massively agree. So you, you've got this job with, uh, with EIS. Was it straight into England women's or was it a, a mixture of different sports? No, again, I, I can't praise the route I took more enough really because I, I came in and it was a, back in those days, they called it a multi-sport practitioner. So the money came from lottery funding into the organisation, the IS, and they would use that money to fund practitioners full time. And I was a multi-sport practitioner, but I had a day a week allocated to wheelchair rugby, and that was my lead responsibility. So I had a national network responsibility for wheelchair rugby, and then I had probably 20 athletes across various different sports, of which one was women's rugby, and I had about four or five in the area who I saw two to three times a week. Um, And that really did give me exposure to... Um, different programs, different needs, and then for all those sports like rugby, like uh, squash, like hockey, I would report up to the national lead for that sport, who would give the directives and the the needs for the program. Uh, would send out requirements, whether it was assessments or feedback on training loads or um, force. 
characteristics on platform, etc. that were done remotely, we could send them back. So uh, there's a really good interactive role where I got to be led by many experienced practitioners, like uh, uh, Mark Simpson was with cycling at the time, and etc. So that, yeah, those guys have, have had years of wisdom on me, um, and it was also an opportunity then to create a bit of a legacy in the wheelchair rugby realm and, and learn about leading a program, which was my first insight into that. So it was very diverse, we should say. Mate, that's awesome because I always think that you know, like careers sometimes a little bit like um, like periodization, general in the early stages and then specific in the later stages. Yeah. And another yeah. thing to think about is that all of those different sports, that's another person that knows about you and is going to say good things about you and, and, and might be the person to help advance your career. Yeah, 100%. So, um, so I think you've got a lot of graduates that come out of university and think, well, oh, my golden job is in rugby because I grew up as a rugby player. Uh, I think you need to lose that insight. You need to learn as a practitioner. I need to know about every sport, have a needs analysis about every sport so I can apply my principles and philosophies to that sport. Um, irrespective of, of, of you know, my own personal aspirations. So. Yeah, I should have listened to that advice about seven, eight years ago because I've, I've just been <laughs> rugby, 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 but I'm stubborn like that. <laughs> so um, kind of moving on to your, um, your, your women's role, how, how long were you with the team and how did, how did your, your kind of role within the team evolve during your time there? So how did um, how did the London Wasps uh, job come about? Did you get uh, headhunted for that, or did you apply? Um... Yeah, it was, it was it was yes to both of those questions. So um, you know, a fellow colleague of ours, a nutritionist, Mike, uh, was working at, at Wasps at the time. Uh, a new director of rugby came in, decided that the current model wasn't fitting his philosophy, so to speak, um, and he wanted to put his own. Things. So his backroom staff were, were notified they would be rolled on the following year. Um, through com- conversations, Mike was asked about local practitioners. You know, a big philosophy was that he wanted somebody that was local to the club that, that had experience and could spend a lot of time investing um, time and effort into the program without worrying about travelling from a farm. Um, my name came up. 
came up and he invited me to talk to him, the director of rugby. We had a conversation. He said, I'm going to put this out to advert. I'd like you to apply. I've been speaking to other people as well. And then it went through an interview process. And then I was lucky enough to, to get the job. Um, but again, it just shows it came from a network of individuals that are, are trusted colleagues who can recommend you, basically. Um, gave me the heads up early doors. So that was that. Yeah. It's... Um... I always like I I think nowadays, especially with the competition that goes on. You know, I spoke to I think you know him as well, Chris Toombs the other day, and he said he spoke to somebody in the UK. There was an academy position that paid I think it was twenty thousand pounds, and they had four hundred applicants. So even if you're the best applicant in the world, there's still you know a quite a large chance that you're going to just fall amongst the the crowd and get lost in the noise. And I like to think that if if you're applying for the job cold. It's, it's almost a certainty nowadays that you're not going to get it. You, you need the help of your network and you need to be, to be standing out from the crowd that much to, to get the job. So, um, yeah, sorry, yeah, go. I don't, think, I don't think these days, I've, I've, I've spoke to you before we came on here, a lot of friends are applying for, or work colleagues that are applying for various positions and I don't think these days your CV is enough, your actual CV isn't enough because they all look too similar. And so when people ask, me what should I do and they maybe say can you have a look at my covering letter the big thing I always say to individuals is you must include in this covering letter something that sets you apart from everyone else what, you know, what's your USP what's your unique selling point and, and where can you add value to this role as opposed to a, a standard copy and paste type covering letter and to use examples of the work you're doing or you have done today that can be applied to the role you're applying for to give real life experiences as opposed to you choose your bumper textbook type principles are are the things that catch employees' eyes. Um, so if you haven't got a network, you definitely have to be structuring your, your covering letters quite quite cleverly to get the attention of the, the shortlisters. Yeah, well, you know, little uh, freebie for uh, people who didn't manage to make the seminar that I did, and uh, like obviously doing a lot of. Uh, commercial PT and, and other stuff online over the years like I've tried to pick up a couple of things to do with with um, commercial copywriting which is like salesmanship in print and I use this on my my CV and obviously having been in that fairly unique position of looking at interns myself but also applying for for positions myself I know that if I'm the guy trying to appoint somebody what I'm going to do is print off all of the CVs and then go through a pile and you know, put the highlighter through it and say, yes, 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 no, 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 and then organize them in that pile. So what I do when I send mine off now is I make sure that I put a big photo of myself in the top right-hand corner of the CV. So one, it doesn't look like everyone else's, and two, it, it puts a face to the name. But also what I do is I go through in Word and everything that I want them to look at within my CV, I actually highlight in yellow within the document itself. So I've effectively done it for them. And again, it's I've drawn their eye to what I want them to see and also it stands out from the crowd as well. So that's, you know, I'd, I'd like to think maybe that's helped me a little bit. I know I've spoken to people that I talked with over Christmas and they've done that and one guy's actually uh, just since got a job and let me know that he reckons he reckons it helped a little bit. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. So what's the biggest difference for you between the, the female environment and the male environment? Yeah, the female environment was one of the best environments for me as a practitioner so you you know these guys the girls I was particularly working with were very very dedicated as part time athletes and 
Um, the fact that the you know, natural females have um, greater gains in strength and hypertrophy, etc., in rugby is, as well, these girls were aspiring to be as good as, even though their ceiling of um, the, the maximum output was, was all naturally lower anyway, based on gender. Yeah. So they were very, very dedicated individuals. However, the variation in their outputs week to week because of the hormonal variations they have was very um, educated, very uh, enlightening for me. Because one week somebody could come in and be smashing power output in terms of jumps or cleans or whatever that metric was, and then suddenly in the space of two or three days they would bomb based on what part of the menstrual cycle they were in. Wow. <laughs> and not only did that have impact on your program, it had an impact in your interactions as well. And I got to a point where I was very, very, um, you know, it, it, was, it was a synergistic relationship between me and the certain individuals who were more susceptible so they would come in the gym and within a couple of minutes you could tell if they were um, on a down day or on an up day and you have to act on that appropriately there and then so sometimes I'd just be sending somebody home or saying that you're just going to do some mobility today because the bank for buck was just not going to be there um, so I think I was, I was spending time varying programs a lot more with the females because they were all out of sync with one another they were had their own individual cycles, um, and it was it was very enlightening. But what the one powerful thing that did was that they realised that you were empathetic with them and sympathetic towards their needs, and therefore you, the long way around, you were getting more out of them. Um, in males, I think that I had much more success with being dictatorial and um, straight down the line with them. And, and in terms of times of stress, um, put it in a realistic terms, it, it, is it, is it an opportunity for the guys to try and cut a corner? You have always a time for me to put the hammer down and say, guys, you're meant to be in a stressful situation. Yeah, this is exactly what we want. So dictatorial scenarios with the men, where I was a little bit more sympathetic and, and bearable with the women. you you got to keep the ladies on side. <laughs> so was, it, was there a difference between the roles as well? So I'm guessing you were a bit of a bit of a one-man band with the women's and maybe getting help where you could whereas at wasps you were managing a team of coaches did that change the role at all or was it fairly similar between the two um yeah it was very different so in terms of the women's role i was looking after probably around 14 to 18 athletes based in london and then we had a funded program of 44 players so those players were scattered all across the country and i had around six or seven remote practitioners in different bases in the IS that I would remotely manage and it wasn't a case of managing them in, in terms of I need you to do X, Y, and Z. It was, here's the program, these are our playing schedules, here's their training schedules from a club point of view, here's our, our ideals of managing a week, this is how we'd like it to be done. Um, but those actual practitioners knew the players better than I did from terms of their responses to training in the gym and their responses to training metabolically. So I would entrust those individuals to make informed decisions based on our ideals and also with regard to where these players were in their long-term athlete development. So there was a remote trust with these, with these practitioners. And then if a practitioner, I would go out and CPD them and do some work with them one-on-one and work with their athletes with them. With WASPs, it was very much a high performance culture we had games week in week out you had to be very 
much more reactive. Um, there was less of a long-term athlete development approach because there was games five, six, seven days apart. Um, and I had a team of four others, so there was a team of five others that I was, that I was managing. Plus there was obviously yourself in, in, in your role. So we had a really good group who could in-house challenge each other and get the best out of the program. With the women, so I was kind of out on a limb on my own. I was never really being challenged in that environment because of the role it was. Um, so two great contract yeah I mean the main thing kind of that I stole from you and that was probably the first exposure that I had to and that what you brought to the role was just real management of everything that the players were doing and the system that you brought in and the data management like I'd, I'd be honest I straight stole it from you <laughs> but I really admired the fact that it didn't matter what player was in the squad or what player group they're in, you could just bring up the data and say, right, this is what they've done today. This is what they've done last week, last month. Here are the trends and stuff like that. And that's definitely something that I've tried to to take away and copy in my work because I think you, you've hinted at it already is as you start to move up, you know, if you're a coach listening to this, as you start to move up, you actually spend less and less time um, coaching and more and more time actually talking to other people and trying to get them to do what's in your head and, and manage the data and stuff like that. And I think I mentioned it on another podcast before talking to um, Darcy Norman from Germany soccer last December and a conversation came up about high performance roles within the NFL. And he said, the trend now is just that it's, it's less and less becoming strength coaches who are moving up to those roles. And it's actually more and more um, number crunches because if it, you, at that level of the job, you're having to present data to coaches and present in a way that's understandable and easy for them to, to grasp. And also it fits the business model as well. Yeah, 100%. I think that the, the beauty of being a wasp with those really trusted guys around me and yourself was that you could, you could once the data was collected, any one of us could make an informed decision from that. We were all singing off the same hymn sheet. If you haven't got something that brings you all together whether it's data or philosophy or culture, then what you're trying to achieve is there's going to be huge variation in it. And um, like you say, you're doing less coaching. I think uh, I call myself a bit more of a facilitator back in that era because I was spending time with the DOR. I was transferring information back to the four coaches who actually in the end became the hands-on floor-based coaches of the group. Uh, and just by nature of the role and having to deal with the variations in the program, I wanted to deal with that and not let them see what's happening behind the scenes. So I was becoming a bit more of a transfer of information and a manager of those practitioners. Whereas now I'm much more in the firing line in terms of coaching on the floor again um, and having control on the data because it's a lot, a lot smaller squad. I'm, I'm probably happier as a result. <laughs> um, I will say, you know, an, another thing that I... Um, that I really admired about the system that you did is that I think a lot of coaches get too worried about if they're in charge, it needs to be their stuff and they need to have super amount of control over the, over the system. Whereas, you know, you, you almost did the opposite. You said to certain coaches within the squad, um, you know, here's 10 guys. They're your guys for, for the year. Now, what I want you to do is on, you know, on a postcard, here's what I want you to achieve. And, Here's the outcomes that I'm looking for, but you can get there however you want. And I thought that really um, cultivated a good culture because it allowed people a bit of autonomy to control their own working environment and just be judged on the results. And it, it kind of spurs one another on because if you see something that somebody else is doing that's good, 
you can take that and, and vice versa. So that was another thing that I thought was was really awesome. So now that you're with um, Sevens, what would you say are the biggest differences uh, from a training perspective between the two codes that you've had to contend with? Um, I wouldn't say contend. It's been, it's been a real pleasure in this role. I think that I've, people have asked me, what's it like and where do you want to be going and do you want to get back into 15s? At the moment, I think I'm in a strength and conditioning uh, practitioner's dream because we are between competitions you have anything from eight to four weeks and you know, it descends as the year goes on to train the guys you know it's, it's like pre-season all the time you know season because they have more control they can stress the guys you get bigger adaptations whereas in the season they're managing workloads week to week and it's really about maintenance and um, working with getting the guys as fit as possible based on the turnarounds that they have and with sevens it's every time we come back from a tour it's right start again review the last tour review the last phase um, do some baseline assessments see where the guys are at see what the needs of the program are and the individuals apply those needs for three four five six seven weeks and and then measure the outcomes at the end of it taper 10 to 14 days into competition we're traveling work on jet lag, you know, it's so diverse but so controlled as well in terms of physical adaptation. So the so that's the stark contrast. It's like off season all the time. Sounds amazing. So what what um what kind of baseline measures you mentioned there? What what are you looking at that's gonna dictate uh the direction of the program when you have access to the guys? Yeah, I think that the key thing you've said there for me is and, and we spoke about it a wasps was that Things you collect need to direct the program. So, and I saw one of your blogs recently about FMS, and and FMS is great, especially for emerging and long-term athlete development. But we can we know our athletes, so it's more about basic measures with the physios in terms of movement screens and groin squeezes and Thomas tests, etc. And they're done day to day on a needs basis. Um, from my point of view, we'll look at simple metrics like. Uh, um, isometric midline pull which some people love some people hate and I, I love it for the fact that it normalises everyone everyone can do it everyone can be competitive with one another it's low cost in terms of time um, and maximum reward in terms of effort you go harder you don't <laughs> you know, yeah simple. Um, we look at a basic body weight count movement and look at peak power relative to body weight um, so those are my metrics that I would do at the beginning and end of every phase and I'll also do it when get home after four or five days off to see if we're getting the compensation effect as well because at the end of the block they tend to be tired and obviously suppressed in those scores but we come out at the end of the competition quite high um, so I can trust the fact that they're in competition with good players. Um, those are our, our, our gym diagnostics. We'll do some load monitoring in terms of simple bench, chin and, uh, um, and sometimes squat related score. And they, but I will never do it as an assessment day. I'll make it part of the training session. So we'll never do one reps. If we're doing four threes, I'll like them to go to a max on one of those sets and record it on a whiteboard. So the guys still feel it's part of the training process and it's not being assessed for assessment's sake. It's just a little more. And I've got some interest in doing that next year with the gym awareness from a velocity point of view. So predicting one on and throughout the year based on sub-maximal lift so we don't tax the boys so much um, as part of the set. 
functions. And then in terms of a metabolic point of view, we'll, we'll regularly do speed work and so we'll speed assess. So again, gates are out a lot for competition and I'll just keep a monitor on it as often as possible. So we have our 10s, our 20s and our 40s in terms of our, our speed, uh, paramount to the game of course. And then in terms of fitness, we do the yo-yo intermittent recovery at the moment because it gives us a really good international comparison. It's tough to do repeated though because it's quite taxing. You're doing about 2.2 to 2.83k on the top end of it. Lots of turns. It's quite stressful compared to the rugby session. Um, so from that point of view, we're using it when required across the year. So in the last phase, we used it because we realised that we had a couple of guys we needed to make accountable and they didn't reach the, the minimum standard so they were on different programs for that block um, but I would I'd like to get to a point where we're doing something that, like a, a 1200 metre test because it correlates well with it where it's five minutes of work it's low top and it can give us a prediction of status rank to top to bottom of who's, who's the fittest and who's the, the weakest in that, that area so that's, that's it in a nutshell really yeah. Did you did you see that thing that um, uh, Brian Mann posted up the the podcast that he did with Jay DeMeo the other day? Yeah. What is interesting that you mentioned about they you know they get tired towards the end of a plot. Um, obviously, the the example that Brian talked about was um, students when there's high academic stress. Um, you know, they're they're two to three more times likely to get injured, and obviously that's going to have an effect on performance. And just thinking about you know, with your guys, they're coming towards the end of a block, competition's coming up, the stress is starting to come on. And that's that's when most coaches are going to be like, well, it's the end of a block, I need to test and, you know, pat myself on the back and look how good we've got. And I think you know, a lot of people sometimes disappoint themselves because their guys are fitter, but, you know, their performance is, is masked by any residual fatigue and stress that you've got from what's going on elsewhere within the programme. Yeah, yeah. So one one um, topic that you and I have talked a little bit about over the last year, I think it was, it might have been just before you started with the sevens job, we were, we were discussing um, energy system work. And from the outside, it appears as like your philosophy has changed a little bit about that. I'm just keen to, to see where you're at with that now and how you've evolved over that over the last couple of years. experiences as a player and as I've got older and done a bit more reading around the subject and 
looked at the the demands of the game are high intensity, but they repeat effort. And for me, it's not the effort, it's not the capacity that's the, the definite defining factor. It's more so the ability to recover and um, minimise the levels of fatigue across the performance time, which is sort of seven minutes each half for us. So we spend a lot more time at either end of the spectrum. So um, you low end, sort of three, four, five minute type work, um, 90% MAS type type of um, work further out from competition and some super, working towards super maximal work closer to competition because the rugby related work will cover the mixed energy systems for us. Yeah. So Monday and Friday we have low, high, high, low with the Wednesday off. That's our spectrum in terms of performance work. And those high days are contact related bias sessions for defence, but it escalates to 77 on full pitch. And, and Thursdays are kind of what we call a, a clarity and fatigue session where we're really stressing guys to put them in scenarios at 77. It may not be full contact, but there's high relevance, high heart rate stresses. Um, but it's stop start and it's just like the game, so it's full on mixed energy demand. Um, so as we get closer to competition and further throughout the year, that will become more prevalent because it will be, particularly the dragon base, I think you just need a stimulus at that point to, to support the previous gains you've made from your low end aerobic work and your super maximal high intensity repeat sprint type work. So that, that's where my philosophy's got to in terms of, of that. And, and it's much easier to manage the, the game of sevens because of those mini off seasons as opposed to in 15 where we were battling to get some intensity out of the, the sessions because we needed that stimulus in rugby to, to maintain the fitness qualities and we just couldn't do it based on a lot of the work being technical tactical um, yeah very true yeah <laughs> mate it's funny um we're you know we're doing something very very similar along those lines like you said where we're trying to work either, you know, super maximal or, or, or bottom end stuff. We're trying to make it more and more incorporated into rugby as, as we get closer to the competition. So are you doing um, standalone energy system development sessions or are you trying to incorporate it within, t within rugby sessions as much as possible? Um, it depends on the time of year. So earlier in the year when we've got much more time between competitions and much more opportunity to vary the program, then it will be a definitely standalone session when we can reduce the time on feet in rugby so we can get of rugby and actually they, they cry out because eight weeks of rugby coaching with no rugby condition is a lot of time and they actually looking for right well let's just spread what we want to achieve over the course of eight weeks so we can bring down rugby 50 minutes have 10, 15, 20 minutes of top-ups on top, and, you know, either before the session or after the session. As the year goes on, and obviously priorities have shifted more towards the rugby, they'll become part of the session or in spare blocks in the week. So we have, definitely on the Friday afternoon and, and earlier in the week, we have spare spare sessions where boys will either orientate themselves to top-ups, but based on the fact that they've, they've scored low on their fitness tests in the year after rugby, and their minimum dose really, their five, 10 minute efforts daily, or the group will be on off-feet modalities. And for the off-feet modalities, it's mostly aerobic, the lower-end stuff in nature. Um, it's just a, and it's a bit of an recovery tool as well towards the end of the week. And I suppose with that, you know, that's a central adaptation anyway, so modality is not as important as it would be for, uh, 
for a, a higher intensity adaptation. Is that right? Yeah. So I mean, it sounds like that's a major, a major pillar of what you're doing. And obviously, anyone who's played sevens will tell you that it's there's a massive endurance component to it. But obviously, speed is is another area to it. And I've learned a lot from you with regard to speed. Do you want to talk a little bit about your your philosophy for for developing speed in rugby players? Flyers 
top-ups at the end of those sessions. Um, the other strand to this is agility. On top of that, the program, the, the coach is really empowering me to, to work on agility and he he's given me the role of ball transfer. So I see agility as the, the foot skills that underpin the outcome of what you're trying to do with the ball. So if you're trying to cut to the left, if you don't move the ball in the appropriate way and free up the inside arm to fend at the same time you're cutting, um, then you could cut 100% textbook, but the outcome could be that the guy gets close to you anyway because you haven't got a fend in and he tackles you anyway. So he lets me use that as part of warm-ups, ball, ball transfer and agility, where I use my four or five key foot skills and um, put on top different chaotic scenarios with the ball in hand and the boys really buy into that because they see it rugby specific so that's our, that's our speed and agility program as a, in a nutshell mate you just got to give them a ball and then uh, you've got their attention hey <laughs> yeah yeah exactly anything that they were born to play games they're children at heart so as long as you can make it competitive then, then you, your outcomes are going to be good mate it's funny like you involve the ball and um, they're always happy and I think I was, I was having lunch with uh, a coach from a private school around here and he works a little bit in AFL. And I was saying it's weird. Now that the alcohol culture, I mean, the alcohol culture in, in professional rugby is still there, particularly in rugby league. But as, as it becomes less and less, there's two things that seem to make, you know, especially the Pumas tick. One is coffee and the other is ice cream. So <laughs> they're like, they're one of those little um, Nescafe machines in the team room, which is like, you know, if that's not in place, they're upset. And it, I, I think it's dinner on a Thursday before we play a test match. They always request ice cream. And when it gets brought in, you know, the mood suddenly gets a little bit more buoyant as well. Yeah, it's funny. We, we, we had a Tuesday, we had a function with, in Hong Kong. So we went over to St. George's Society, put lunch on for us. And it's my first experience of this dinner that they've done for years now. And we're, the boys had split up amongst the tables so they host the tables with the guests and everyone's been brought out this beautiful lamb shank with like red sauce on it and really nice. Looks really healthy. I'll see and it would be. Yeah, all the players got brought out a, 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 like a garlic time chicken and some spaghetti and some tomato sauce. <laughs> yeah, so of all the people have thought that the benefit of being really, really strict on nutrition was seen as being very professional and they like that in this culture. But if, if I'd been asked, I would have been like, what's the best thing to you know, give these boys the best mood? And, and it would have been just to let them eat whatever everyone else was eating, which included a nice little dessert. And the boys I work with, especially, are very dedicated. They've all got low body comps and they're very uh, aware of discipline required. So freeing up that rain every now and then is, is very, very powerful. Um, and it goes back to everything you can do you, you need to experience coaching and different personalities and characters to to manipulate the program to get the best outcome that you, you can have um, people don't want to do certain things so if you try and force it on them often it's it's met with equal resistance and that's one of the biggest things I've learned is to read that situation of when to push and when to pull um, correctly right that's that's the same reason I spend so many goddamn hours in the gym listening to um, Latin remixes or covers of uh, Adele. <laughs> right, let's um, let's let's wrap it up, mate. I've taken up enough of your time. Um, give me three people to listen to within the industry, so people can come away with something. 
put some real honest, hard-hitting facts out there. So I think from a realistic and um, real-world applied nature, like everyone should keep an eye on your blog. I, I do enjoy reading it. I do, do enjoy talking to you about certain things as well. Um, I know you've had him on here as well, Tom, Tom Farrow, one of your first podcasts, I think. Absolutely, yeah. It's a very insightful individual. I think what Tom is still learning from an applied sense, um, he is way ahead of the field in terms of diverse thought processes and the way he thinks about, about coaching. Um, and I think he kind of gets that from a guy called Sinavia as well that, that he sort of grew up uh, working alongside a little bit. So those would be the, the first two. Um, uh, Lee, I think, I think anyone, anyone out there on Twitter, there's so many. I think you've got, like you've mentioned, you've got Brian Manns who are big on the velocity training and the, you know, the collegiate type of program. And you've got your man, uh, Maladin, who's very good on analytics. And God care. damn it, he's a genius. <laughs> yes. Um, and then on the flip side, you've got real world practitioners. Uh, the Institute now is very good, a good number of practitioners who are coaching Dane Dale and, and who is now a doctor. Dr. Ben Rosenblatt is a good guy. Uh, worked alongside and you know, coerced with numerous times. I was very insightful, especially with sort of the rehab and injury side of things. He's now diversified in terms of the work he's doing with hockey he's definitely a guy to keep an eye on and then a guy over in the States who used to be on the programme called Dave Hamilton who, who um, spoke to for a while actually but was always a guy that was on the same level in terms of thinking about the programme from a, a data point of view and, and, and then using that information from all practice but also in terms of ensuring you knew each individual player as a person first and foremost cool. to help inform those decisions Oh, mate, added value. <laughs> Where can people find you online? Um, on Twitter, uh, at HowlsDan. That's H-O-W-E-L-L-S-D-A-N. Um, I'm a, I have periods of up and down in terms of my Twitter, but I'm on it daily. It's a fantastic place to keep up to date with uh, current research and discussion points, etc. So, yeah, that's my main source of where you can find me. Mate, thank you very much. Thanks so much for your time.